that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. For we're ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. I'm going to give you a little disclaimer here at the front end. Uh, I don't have any points for you. They're going to be on the screen. Uh, I tried to throw some together, and then the computer wasn't working, and we figured maybe that was the Lord saying, nah, don't try to force these ones. I'm a big advocate of manuscripting your sermons, right? So if you looked at my notes, it's almost verbatim what I'm going to say. Now, I get a little excited every once in a while. Some things get added in that weren't there originally. Um, and I have a full manuscript in, in front of me. Uh, but we're going to build this plane as we fly it this morning, uh, as we look at this text and think about this idea of a better joy. You know, one of the great joys of being a pastor, at least for me, is being able to officiate weddings. There are actually quite a few of you in this room whose wedding I have had the privilege of officiating. I like weddings. Part of the reasons I like weddings is because they're simply a time of celebration and joy. Now that's, that's what they are. It's a tremendous joy to watch as two people covenant together to spend the rest of their lives as a husband and a wife. And the best weddings, okay, you can write this down, are the weddings that know how to party. Those are the best ways. We joke, but if you've been around New Breed folks, you know it's true. There isn't really quite a party like a New Breed party when it comes to a wedding. That, that, that was the amen, if ever there was one. We like to celebrate as a church, and that's a good thing, a good thing. But for anyone who's ever been married, you know that a lot of <clears throat> planning has to go into your wedding. There's a lot of preparation on the front end to enjoy that celebration. But what that also means is that there is the potential with so much planning for something to go wrong. When I do weddings, one of the things I typically tell every couple, it's always at the end of the rehearsal dinner. So you do the rehearsal dinner the night before. Um, some of you might remember this if I did your wedding. I always tell the bride and the groom, I pull them aside. It's the last thing I say before uh, we, we head home, get ready for the wedding the next day. I say, at this point, we have planned everything that we can plan. That doesn't mean everything will go according to plan. But at this point, the one thing I need you to do is what I tell them. I need you to enjoy this moment and celebrate what, what's happening. And as I was thinking about this text and what occurs during this wedding in John 2, it quite naturally reminded me of my wedding. Not everything went according to plan at my wedding. We planned, or should I say Aaliyah planned, uh, and I argued, um, but she planned and a lot of work went into that day, but still not everything went perfect. For example, when we got to the reception after the ceremony, there was a couple little hiccups in the ceremony as well, but that went fairly smooth. But we got to the reception, as the food was brought out, we realized that the food that we had ordered was not the food that was sitting in front of us. Now, no one really noticed this but us. I mean, there was food for everyone. Some of y'all were there. If you've been around for a while, right, Carlos and y'all had some food. There was food at the wedding. You probably didn't know, but it wasn't the food that we ordered. And I remember telling Ali, I said, listen, it could have been worse because we could have had no food at all. At least they brought something. And what I was trying to get at was it was an inconvenience to have the wrong food, but it would have been a little bit more embarrassing if we had no food. But still, that mishap did not in any way change the joy of our celebration at that moment. 
However, the same could, be not, could not be said about this situation in Cana. Here in our text, we come to, at least as John tells the story, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And if you think about it, it's somewhat fitting, isn't it? That the opening of Jesus' ministry would take place at a wedding. You have to think of the significance of a wedding in terms of God's interaction with His people throughout the ages. You see, one of the pictures that God has used with His people and, and with the covenant that He has made, He uses the picture of a marriage. Which is why when Israel gets it wrong in Jeremiah 31, God says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with your fathers in the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he says this, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this new covenant, right, that God promises will also be like a marriage. As Hosea notes in Hosea 2.19, speaking of this new covenant, he says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. So in John 2, you get the sense right off the bat with the first scene of Jesus' ministry being a wedding that something bigger is going on with Jesus' first miracle than Jesus merely turning some water into wine. There's symbolism and there's some lessons to be learned. So what I want to do, I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of recapping the story that we just read, hopefully filling in some of the details, and then I'm going to try to parse it out to give you a little bit of application at the end. That's, that's the plan. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. So you with me? All right, because y'all just staring at me. All right. The story begins in verses 1 and 2, and it tells us on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So we learn right off the bat that there's some sort of connection here between Jesus and the bride or the groom. There's a connection between the wedding party and Jesus. We don't know if this is a distant relative of Jesus who's getting married. We don't know if it's just a family friend. But this is taking place in Cana of Galilee, about nine miles or so from where Jesus grew up. So it's likely that these are people that he's known for the entirety of his life. His disciples also were invited to attend. So Jesus is at the party. Things are going smooth, but then something terrible happens. The wine runs out. Now, I know some of you aren't shocked by this statement. You're good Baptist. Okay, we can have a party without a little wine. But I need you to understand that this is a tough spot for the newly married couple to be in. You see, weddings, they were a little different in the ancient Near East. See, what we typically do, right, we have, I just recently did a, a wedding. We do a, you know, you do your ceremony around 4 o'clock. Get out of there in about... 30 minutes, if they're long-winded. Take some pictures, head over to reception, eat some food, dance for a couple hours, and then everybody's on their way. That's not what happened in the ancient Near East. Weddings often lasted a week. And over the course of the week, guests would come and go. So here's what's crazy. After the ceremony, the bride and the groom would be escorted home. They, they'd often be carried under a canopy. I mean, for the day, they were kings and queens. The whole community would come out. They would go home, but rather than go on a honeymoon, they would open their house for the next week for people to come and go as they pleased. That is not a tradition that I am thankful that we have in our culture. But that was 
That's what it would look like. I lost my place. Give me one second. So you can imagine, right, that, that you needed a lot of food and wine to have a party for a week. It put financial strain on families, those who were getting married, whose responsibility it was to provide for their guests. But I want you to, I want you to understand how serious this was. In the ancient Near East, if a married couple failed to provide wine for the entirety of the party, the custom was of such significance that you could literally file a lawsuit against the bride and the groom for failing to provide wine. Wine was essential for joy and celebration. Even throughout Scripture, church, the presence of wine signifies joy and gladness. Some of y'all are like, I'm glad I came to church this morning. We're finally going to get the green light to go pop the bottles. But in Scripture, wine signifies joy and gladness. I'm on good exegetical ground here. You could consider Isaiah 55, verse 1. Or you could look at Jeremiah 31, verse 12, which says, They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will be radiant with joy because of the Lord's goodness, because of the grain and the new wine. Or you could look at Joel 3.18. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. One more. You could look at Amos, verse, or chapter 9, verses 13 through 14. Look, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities. They will plant vineyards and drink wine. Wine is synonymous in Scripture with joy and with gladness, with celebration. So I need you to feel the weight of Mary's words. When she says, they don't have any more wine, she is essentially saying the celebration is over. The joy has run out. And I tell you, as I've been studying this, that phrase at the beginning of verse 3 has just been haunting for me. When the wine ran out. Because can I tell you this morning that that statement, when the wine ran out, is not only indicative of the moment John is recording in John 2, but it represents the reality of our condition apart from Christ. That there will come a time when the wine will run out. You don't have to say amen because I know it's true. If you are looking for joy in your money, there will come a time when the money will run out. One sickness, one emergency that you didn't plan for, one bill for some of us that we forgot to pay, at the right time, the money will run out. If you're looking for joy in your relationships, I don't care how amazing that person is, there will come a time when they will let you down and the joy will run out. If you're looking for joy in your job, in your accomplishments, I don't care how high you have climbed the corporate ladder, if the right recession hits, your joy, the wine, will run out. What I'm trying to get you to see is that there are plenty of things in this life that can provide a level of joy. But the problem is, in this broken world, there will come a time when the wine will run out. And so if there's going to be a joy that lasts, there has to be a better joy. 
So Mary sees in our story that the wine has run out. And what does she do? She goes straight to her firstborn son. At this time, uh, uh, Joseph has passed away. So, so Mary is alone. She's relying on her children. She goes to her oldest son, Jesus, and says, they don't have any wine. Now, I got to be honest with you. Jesus' response has always been a little strange to me. Now, I'll look a little bit more at it in a minute. Let me just tell you what he says. He says, what concern, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, I do want to mention this on the front end. There is no indication that Jesus referring to his mother as woman is disrespectful. I know that wouldn't fly today. Some of y'all go home, call your mom, say, what does this have to do with me, mother? Or woman, I'm sorry. And see how that plays out for you. But we know that Jesus wasn't disrespectful. He didn't sin. And we know that this wasn't a derogatory statement. Because even when Jesus is dying on the cross, in sympathy, he addresses his mother as woman. So he's not being rude. He's not being cross with her. But then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, he's going to say this nine times throughout the book of John, that my hour has not yet come. It is not my hour. It is not my time. And what Jesus is essentially doing anytime he makes that statement is he's saying he knows his ultimate purpose and the way in which he will ultimately be glorified. And it's not going to be by turning water into wine. Jesus knows that he will be glorified when he inaugurates the new kingdom and the new covenant through his death and resurrection. So Jesus knows why he's here from the jump. He knows where he's heading and he says, this is not my hour. This is not where my glory will ultimately come from. So he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So it seems like when you read that, at least to me, maybe I'm reading into it. It seems like Jesus is saying, this isn't my problem. I'm not doing anything about it. And so his mother says to his servants there in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. So the Bible tells us what happens next, verses 6 and 7. Now six stone water jars had been set there for a purpose. What was it? For Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Now watch this, verse 8. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. You got to understand this head waiter, this is a master of ceremonies. He's done this countless times. He knows how to throw a party. He knows how it works, right? He's going to say it here in a minute. See, what typically happens is they invite all the people and at the front end, that's when you bust out the Woodford double oak. That's when you pop the absolute vodka, but once the palate has become a little immune to the taste, if you will, that's when you go to Tito's homemade vodka right there. You give them the good stuff on the front end, and then you give them the not so good stuff on the back. Those are real brands. Some of y'all are a little shocked. I know you're too holy for this conversation. I get it. I get it. Just go with me, okay? So they take it to the head waiter, and, and they, they do that. And the head, head waiter tasted the water, and it had become wine, the Bible tells us. He didn't know where it came from. It says, though, the servants who had drawn water knew. And he called the groom and he told them, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Woodford, Bacardi, the good stuff. But then when the people are drunk, then they bring out the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
Now, this is where my imagination goes. The story doesn't tell us anything about it, but I got to imagine what the, what, the, what the groom's thinking at this moment because he doesn't know what's going on. He's like, oh, yeah, we did that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly what our plan was. He's whispering out, we didn't have enough. But he's not, he's not significant in this story. But what the head waiter is saying is that, hey, you've saved the best for last. And what Jesus does in this moment, don't miss it, is he's actually offering a better joy, a better celebration. And I can't let, you, can't, can't let you miss the significance of this. This is not just a better joy in terms of wine at a wedding. There's some symbolism going on here. I hope you caught it because in verse six, 6 it says, Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus intentionally doesn't go looking for some random containers. No, he takes the, jar, the jars that have a ceremonial purpose, that are used for purification. These jars were typically used for a ceremonial cleansing before you would eat or you would drink. It's not necessarily dictated to us in the Old Testament, but it had become a tradition for Jews. We see it in Mark 7, 3, where it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. So in essence, they, they recognize that there is a way in which we may have become ceremonially unclean. And we don't want to touch things with unclean hands. And we don't want to eat things with unclean hands. So they would go through the ceremony of purifying themselves. So in essence, what those jars were meant to do was remind them of their dirtiness. And I want you to see this. Jesus takes the jars that highlight the fact that they are ceremonially unclean and changes them into vessels of joy. But see, even more than that, John tells us they're filled to the brim. So they hold about 20 or 30 gallons of liquid. So Jesus just doesn't give them a little joy. He doesn't just give them some joy. He fills them to the brim with joy. It's almost as if this is a physical picture of what John says about Jesus, what we looked at in John chapter 1. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. See, though this, through this miracle, through this provision of joy, John tells us in verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The reason I walk through that, what I'm trying to get you to see is that in this story, what Jesus is communicating is that he provides a better joy. That Jesus can take your insufficiencies and provide a better joy. That Jesus can take your shame and provide a better joy. Jesus can take your inadequacies and provide a better joy. The, the question we have to answer this morning is how in the world do we experience this better joy? Now I want to show you three things in the text that give us, I think, some insight into how it is we experience this joy. So that was my introduction, okay? I'm trying to move a little quicker here. How is it that you and I can experience this better joy? And I think we learned some lessons from some of the minor players in the story. So let me give you these lessons, show you the players, and hopefully encourage you with how you can experience in your own life this better joy that Jesus provides. The first lesson actually comes from the bride and groom themselves. Here it is. If you want to experience a better joy, you have to actually invite Jesus into your story. 
You have to actually invite Jesus into your story. That's what we learned there in verse 2. Jesus had to actually be invited to the wedding in the first place. If he doesn't show up, they're stuck in shame. If he doesn't show up, the wine runs out and there's nothing to fill it with. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Some of us never experienced the better joy that comes with Jesus because we haven't actually invited him into our story. We haven't invited him into our situation. I, re I remember an instance, this was quite long ago, so before I was married, where there was a group of, of guys, there was about four of us, we were really, really good friends, and every Tuesday morning we would get up super early before work and we would go to Waffle House to have Bible study because nothing says relying on the sufficiency of Scripture like trying to talk about the Bible after you ate some of those hash browns, Okay. But we would do it every Tuesday. We did it for years. And there was one particular meeting that came the weekend after one of our buddies' birthday. I remember it. He was the only one in our group who was married at the time. So as we gathered, we were kind of excited for him, right? Like we're asking like, hey man, we know it was your birthday over the weekend. You know, your wife said you were doing some stuff. How was your birthday? Did you have a good weekend? And we were a little surprised because he looked extremely disheartened at that question. He seemed a little down about it. And he said, no, it, it was good. It was, I mean, it's a true story. He said, it was, it was a good weekend. He said, we had a, we had a good little get-together, but i got to be honest with you guys. I was a little disappointed because I really hoped that you all would be there. You, you were, you're my closest friends. Now, I'll be honest, we were all a little confused. We did the whole like, kind of side-eye, like looking at one another, but not trying to let him know that we're looking at one of us. And then one of our buddies finally said, hey, man, like, we would have loved to celebrate with you. Nobody invited us to the celebration. Apparently... He thought his wife was inviting us, and his wife thought that he was inviting us, and so no one invited us, so we just assumed they were doing a little family get-together, and they had a whole party, and his closest friends weren't there. And we said, hey man, we would have celebrated. We would have brought joy to that moment and had a great time, but you, would have, you actually had to invite us to the party. And what I'm trying to say is that there is a joy that is available in Christ. There is, there is a joy that is greater than any other joy. But the only way you experience that is by actually inviting Jesus into your story. And if you want to know what that looks like, the Bible helps us out. Listen, I'm not just talking about for those who may be here that don't know Jesus. Yes, if you want that joy, you got to invite him into your story. You have to see his sufficient work of dying on the cross and raising from the dead and paying the debt that you owe, placing your faith in him, trusting in him through repentance. Absolutely, this is for you. But I'm talking to you who are believers. Some of you aren't experiencing the better joy because you're not actually inviting Jesus into your story. The Bible tells us, though, that there is a joy that is available. I mean, think about it. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy. God wants to actually provide a better joy for you. But in the very next breath in Galatians, after, after mentioning the fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us that if you want to experience this, you have to live in the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. I'm going to make it as plain as I can. Where joy is lacking in your life, it is often an indication that you are not actually walking with Jesus in the everyday rhythms of your life. It's not enough to just show up on Sunday mornings and then ignore Jesus the rest of the week and then get mad when you're experiencing a fleeting joy and the wine runs out. He'll get the blame. We'll blame him when the joy runs out. But we won't actually walk with him in the everyday rhythms of our life and experience this joy that transcends our circumstances. So the first lesson is if we want to experience this better joy, it's to invite Jesus into our story. Walk with him in the day in and day out patterns of our life. But there's another lesson. If you want to experience a better joy, you have to know where to go with your troubles. 
You have to know where to go with your troubles. This lesson comes from Jesus' own mother. Right? John 2, verses 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any more wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Now, again, I, I need you to feel this with me this morning. Not just intellectually. You've got you to put yourself there. The weight of this moment. The potential shame and embarrassment for these people who Jesus and his family know intimately. Right? These aren't random strangers. They, they've been invited to a wedding because they're a part of their story somehow. Potential shame, embarrassment, the decline in social status, potential lawsuits because the wine ran out. Now somehow Mary learns of this trouble. We don't know how. We don't know if someone comes up and tells her. We don't know if she was going to try to fill her red Solo cup and it was empty and she was upset. But she knows that the wine has run out. And so what does she do? The first thing, the first thing, she doesn't rely on her connections. She doesn't start going around asking people to run home and get some wine to help uh, these people avoid embarrassment and shame. That's not what she does. She doesn't rely on her resourcefulness. She's not on the phone with Liquor World saying, I know y'all open 24-7. We got to place an order. You got to get here fast. That's not it. That's not what she does. The problem comes and she says, hey, Jesus. I need to talk to you real quick. Her first response is to turn to Jesus. Now, again, this is the difficult part because Jesus' response is not what you would expect. I've, I've always wrestled with this response. At least it's not what I would expect. I think I would have been fine with this response if he then did nothing. He says, hey, uh, this isn't my problem. And chapter 2 comes to an end. But that's not what happens. He says, you know, what does this have to do with me? He's saying, this isn't my wedding. This isn't on me. Nobody asked me to contribute any wine. But there's a level of faith in Mary's response that I don't want you to miss. It's seen when she speaks to the servants. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't say, come on, like, I know who your daddy really is. You can do this. No, she just looks at the servant and says, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. And she seems to walk away. But I love this. Mary does not know what Jesus is going to do. But she leaves the problem in the hands of the one she knows can do anything. Church, I'm telling you, if I had time to preach it like I feel it, I'd, I'd say something like this. There are going to come some times in your life when the problems are so big that they threaten to rob you of all your joy. There are going to come some diagnosis that you aren't going to be able to medicate yourself out of. There are going to come some loss that no amount of money can replace. There are going to come some valleys that you won't have the strength to climb out of. There are going to come some moments when the night seems so dark that you're not sure if you'll ever see the sun shine again. And when those moments come, we got to learn how to leave our burdens in the hands of the one who can do everything anything anything I don't know I don't I don't know how to fully understand I'm just being honest with you, this interaction with with Mary and Jesus I mean I've got theories I've got speculations but it's still an awkward interaction to me but but this is the best I've got I have to believe that Jesus was serious when he said what does this have to do with me I, I think he intended to do nothing but yet he acts and this is the best I got. 
And listen, I believe in a sovereign God who works all things according to his will. We can chop it up about higher theology later. I believe that. I believe that God will accomplish all of his plans. I think he knows every outcome. I think that God is sovereign. But I am also convinced that there are just some things that Jesus doesn't intend to do, but he will do if you'll ask him. And again, I think I'm on good exegetical ground here because Jesus says in Matthew 21, 22, that all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. There seems to be this indication that there are some things that God doesn't have to do that he might not do, but he will do if his people will come to him in faith. It's almost as if Jesus just can't deny the faith of his people. There's something about the honest faith of his people that Jesus just won't deny. And that should be an encouragement to us. I'm not saying he'll do exactly what you want. I'm just saying the Bible seems to say that God pays attention when his people ask for things in faith. Because Mary does not know what Jesus is going to do. And if all this is true, then you and I have to learn where to take our trouble when trouble comes. And the beauty of Jesus and walking with him and laying your burdens at his feet is that even in the midst of trouble, Jesus can provide a joy bigger than your circumstances. Let me say it like this. The promise of his presence when the problem come, problems come is enough to keep joy in your heart even when your heart is broken. Let me say it again. The promise of his presence when the problems come is enough to keep joy in your heart even when your heart is broken. Let me give you one more lesson and then I'll be in my seat this morning. To experience a better joy not only do we have to invite Jesus into our story, and not only do we have to know where to go with our troubles, but third, if we want to experience this better joy, we have to walk in faith even when we can't see. We have to walk in faith even when we can't see. Do you know where we learn this lessons in the story? I like this. This is my favorite part. In the servants, who have a very small part, but there's a profound detail, and if we don't pay attention, we'll miss it. I think it's one of the most amazing details in the story, other than the whole like turning water into wine. That's pretty spectacular. But so Mary tells the servants to do whatever Jesus says. And Jesus tells them to fill the purification jars. Now verse 8, then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Pay close attention to these words, okay? And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I'd never picked up on this before. I wasn't smart enough to see it this week. Commentators are just smarter than me. Uh, I thank God for smart men, women who write books. But I want you to pay attention to this. When the head waiter tastes the water, it's already become wine. Now, we don't know when it turned into wine. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when the water changes to wine. But there's an interesting line there at the end of verse 9 that I tried to hit. It says that though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I'm telling you, I preach it if y'all let me. Okay, here it comes. The indication from the text is that Jesus said, fill the jars with water, and the servants drew water. But when the head waiter tasted, it was wine. So when they drew it out, it was still water, which means they were walking to the head waiter with water and the joy hadn't come yet, but they were walking like it was already there. Church, I'm trying to tell you that sometimes when joy seems impossible, it is the walking in faith that will allow us to experience the joys that we are longing for. 
I mean, Proverbs 10.28 says, the hope of righteousness brings joy. Not even the realization of righteousness. The hope of it can bring joy. And sometimes the best we got is to hope that if Jesus said it, he'll do it. And that hope is enough to produce a better joy. Sometimes when joy seems distant, we have to trust that God will not fail. We walk in faith, believing that our faith will be sight. When sorrows seem to be all around us, we have to trust that God is working to produce a joy in us that transcends our circumstances. I like the way that David says it in Psalm 30, that sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And sometimes when it seems like there is no joy, we have to walk with Jesus in faith, believing that he is producing in us what the apostle Peter calls an inexpressible joy filled with glory. We have to believe that God will not fail. I love that picture. They drew water. But they're walking like the joy's already there. They're walking like the wine's already there. They don't know what Jesus is going to do. Can you imagine their face? I mean, can you put yourself there? They're like, this is embarrassing. Oh, first he takes our purification jars. We needed those. And now I got to hand water to this head waiter. And the head waiter tastes it. And his response is, you saved the best till last? I mean, you thought the husband felt some kind of way. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we knew it the whole time. But they knew where they draw, drew the water from. They knew who had turned the water into wine. Church, we have to believe sometimes that, that God will not fail. Now listen, I know, I know. Some of you might be thinking, Michael, one, this isn't your most cohesive sermon. That's fine, I'll own that. But you might be thinking, I just... I don't know, man. I don't know if Jesus will do it for me. I mean, let's be honest. It's, like, it's one thing to read a story of Jesus turning water into wine and be like, that was great for them, but how in the world can you promise me that he will do this for me? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because once again, you gave me my ending. Here it is. When you go back to the beginning of the chapter, John says, on the third day. On the third day. That statement makes no sense in the chronology of this book. It makes no sense. On the third day of what? Go read before it. On the third day of what? You just talked about the four days you were with John the Baptist, now you've traveled, and then there's just this random on the third day. It makes no chronological sense unless John is not concerned about what has happened but what will happen. The statement makes no sense if you take it at face value. Because he never says a third day from what. But John isn't concerned about that because he's trying to tell you a bigger story about Jesus. He just wants you to see, I'm going to give it to you plain. He wants you to see that Jesus worked a miracle on the third day. And what I'm trying to tell you is that this might have been Jesus' first miracle on a third day. But it wouldn't be his last miracle on a third day. Because on this third day, Jesus turned a couple's social sorrow into celebration. But there's coming another third day when Jesus will turn the world's spiritual sorrow into celebration. I know it's true because that's the reason Jesus came. He is the word made flesh. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And when the world was in spiritual sorrow, Jesus showed up. He lived the perfect life that you and I should live. And yet he died in the place, in our place as a criminal. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head. They crucified him on a hill called Calvary. And he died that Friday afternoon. They put him in a borrowed tomb. 
And he stayed in that tomb on Friday. And he stayed in that tomb on Saturday. But then on the third day, on the third day, early Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. And when he walked out of that grave, he walked out with the power over sin, death, and the grave. And his resurrection declares to us that our spiritual sorrow can be turned into celebration because Jesus paid a debt that we owed. And if our debt is paid, then you and I have a better joy. We have a better joy than the stuff this world can offer us. We have a stronger joy than the sorrows this world throws at us. In Christ, the words of Psalm 4 ring true that you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abounds. Jesus offers a better joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you that you are a God who will show up in the midst of our shame and our embarrassment in the midst of our insufficiencies and inadequacies. And God, not only will you show up, but you can turn that sorrow into celebration. God, and we thank you that you have always been faithful to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace. God, to invite you into our stories, not just on Sunday mornings, but that we would walk with you and love you in the everyday rhythms of our life and find that you can indeed produce a joy that is not dependent on circumstances. God, I pray that we will know where to turn to first when troubles come, believing that you will respond to your people when they come in faith. And God, I pray that in those moments when we can't see what in the world you are doing, that we will walk in faith, believing that you will not fail. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.